0: I've uh, I've really really wrestled with this passage this week. I actually found it really really difficult Um, It's a difficult one to understand. It's a difficult chapter to kind of understand and piece together It's difficult to kind of grasp. How does this fit then with the rest of James? So uh, We really need God's help tonight I need his help to be able to explain it clearly and um, we all need his help to be able to understand it Uh, There's a great little verse. I love in Psalm 119 that says open my eyes That I may see wondrous things in your law So should we pray that verse for each other now? Heavenly Father, we come to you at the end of a a long week. uh, But we pray for your help now. We pray for inspiration as I speak, inspiration as we listen, that we would hear your voice and that you would help us to understand the things in this passage we've had read that are very difficult. Uh, Help us to grapple with them as we grapple with you. And please... Give us insight that we might understand these things and they would help us to live to the glory of your name this week. Amen. Great. Well, you know you know the phrase of old, uh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Okay. We're going to think a bit about that tonight, but I'm going to completely change the phrase. Uh, We've been thinking in the book of James, this series has been called uh, Faithful. We've been looking at what it means to be faithful all the way through the book of James. So we're going to think about the phrase, when the going gets tough... But rather than the tough get going, it's going to be the faithful. And rather than just the faithful get going, we're going to see other things in this passage. Uh, When the the going gets tough, do you remember these people? Billy Ocean, who famously sung that song, When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. And then Boyzone, if you're a little bit older, on the right. uh, That was the song that they famously coined. Um, But we're going to think about what it's like when the going does get tough in the Christian life. How do we persevere? I may preach just for five minutes longer than normal tonight and partly because I don't want to go quickly uh, because it's difficult And partly because I want to try and pull together some of the things we've seen all the way through James So we don't just look at this passage in isolation Um, But just remember then uh, very first verse very first week chapter 1 verse 1 who is James writing to? He's writing to Jewish Christians who are scattered all over the ancient world. They're facing persecution uh, They're isolated um, They're struggling and, and James mentions a few times in the letter some of the dangers that these Christians were facing. And this is a couple of examples. The dangers they were facing was the dangers of the world getting into the church. So in the first chapter, one of the commands, I guess, uh, James says to these Christians, keep yourselves from being polluted by the world. And then chapter 4, he described them as adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? So into that kind of context then, I think the key verse to understand the book of James, if you remember, it came in chapter 1, verse 21. Um, Humbly accept the word planted in you. I guess a really important question for us to ask, I hope you've been asking as we've gone through this series, do you allow the world to shape you, or does God's word shape you? Of course, we're not called as Christians to withdraw from the world, we're called to live in the world, we're called to engage with the world, we're called to love the world. But the world isn't what is meant to primarily shape us, primarily shape our characters and shape the way we relate together. Uh, God is the one who is meant to shape us. And so if we're a church that humbly accepts the word of God that's planted in us, it's a picture almost like of an acorn being planted under the ground. Notice what comes in the next verse. James then commands these listeners, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So all the way through the book of James, the point he's trying to make is our faith, what we believe, is then seen through the way that we live. And that our faith and and the way we live are not meant to be separate. It's an astonishing book, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, in 108 verses which you find in the book of James, 50 verses contain an imperative or command. Lots and lots and lots of call to action. Um, It's a highly practical book. And I hope you've enjoyed some of the things that we've looked at together. And I guess one of the key ways that we see faith in action was what we looked at last week Do you remember faithful in the way that we relate To one another and we saw last week didn't we that we all need wisdom Because wisdom fosters humility Uh, Wisdom calls us to submit to God And wisdom enables or teaches us to love one another And I guess as you look at those words on the screen you remember what we looked at last week You like I would say Relating well in the church is really really important, but it's really hard really hard our relationships are not easy and when we get them wrong uh, we suffer and it's for those reasons that it shouldn't be a surprise to us that as we come off the back of last week and those things we looked at look at chapter 5 verse 7 what's the very first thing that james says be patient then in the context of loving each other be patient then brothers and sisters until the lord's coming And so as we look at the passage together, here's our first, when the going gets tough. When the going gets tough, the faithful are patient. Just have a look at verses 7 to 10. Do you notice there are four references to the word patient or patience? James is calling his hearers to patience. And patience, if you notice, at the end of uh, middle of verse 11, is the thing that we need if we are to persevere in the Christian life. The Christian life is difficult, and if we're going to persevere, we need the patience that comes from God. If we don't have that kind of patience, the problem comes where circumstances that surround us will control us. But James is saying, don't allow circumstance to control you. Let God control you. I wonder if you reflect on your own life. Um, How good are we at allowing God's timing to rule our life as opposed to our own timing? Just a question for you to ponder. You could apply it in all sorts of ways. But are we quick to let God's timing rule our lives? Or are we much quicker to seek to control our own? Because James goes on in this passage, notice in verse seven he speaks of the farmer. It's a very vivid picture in an agricultural co- context. This would have really spoken volumes. And the farmer, as you know, can work hard in terms of where they plant their seed, and they can select the seed they plant. But they have no control over the rain. There's certain things we can control, and a huge amount that we can't. But what does the farmer do? He plants the seed, and he waits patiently. And we see eventually, verse eleven what the lord finally brings about so in the context of when the going gets tough when the christian life is difficult one of the things that you and i need to pray for more of is a god-given patience because we know throughout the book of james we've seen this particularly in chapter one that god brings about his purposes doesn't he in our lives but so often it's not in our timing god always does what he wants but it's very often not in our timing Do you remember back to chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, where James described that it's the testing of our faith that develops perseverance. And what does perseverance lead to? Maturity. So I want you to think, and I'm just going to be quiet for a minute, think of a moment in your life where you've been really tested, which has been really hard for you. And think, what is it that God has taught you in that moment? Or what if you're going through something very difficult at the moment? What is God teaching you? Just have a think for a moment. When the going gets tough, the faithful are called to be patient. And I think that's what verse 12 is. A, it's a puzzling verse. Look down at verse 12. Why, why is verse 12 here? This new verse about kind of swearing, letting your yes be yes, your no be no. What's that got to do with what we've just looked at? Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or anything else. All you need to say is simply yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. In the first century, oaths were a way of kind of expressing control. And, and it works in our own kind of language as well, doesn't it? I could say something like, um, when I'm convinced I'm right on something, I might say to someone, it'd be wrong to do it, but I swear that I'll prove that I'm right. You see how we use the expression, or if someone wants to seek revenge, you see it on films all the time, the kind of, I swear you'll pay. We use that word, I swear, almost in a way of saying, I'm in control, and I want to prove to you that what I know is going to happen is actually going to happen. James is saying, no, no, no. Don't be people who seek to control your circumstances because you're not in control. Be people instead who seek to trust God in your circumstances. When the going gets tough, the the, the faithful are called to be patient. Second thing, though, you see in this passage is that when the going gets tough, the faithful get praying. Uh, We're going to get praying together on Tuesday night. It's going to be a good evening, so really want to see us all there as we uh, come together. But here's something I've really reflected on this week. In a letter that is packed full of action, 108 verses, 50 imperatives, isn't it amazing that the letter chooses to end with a focus on prayer? It's unusual, isn't it? Go, 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 says James. And at the end, he calls us to pray. Here's another question for you to reflect on. When when do you pray? I don't mean the time of day, if you have a set time. In what circumstances do you pray? I wonder for how many of us this is the sort of circumstances, the kind of uh, Aladdin's genie. When life gets difficult, when we're facing a tough choice, a difficult relationship, a difficult exam, when someone's sick, it's right to come to God and pray. But is that the only time we pray? When life's bad... I go to God, who's my magic genie, to fix me. And the rest of the time when life's just going really well, I kind of forget. Because I suspect that for many of us, without sort of jumping too far towards this caricature, that might be something to do with the way that we pray. I'm very quick to pray when things go wrong. I'm very slow to pray the rest of the time. But James kind of corrects that. Do you have a, have a look at verse 13? He says, listen, if any of you is in trouble, pray... If anyone is happy, let them sing songs of praise. It's kind of a continuum, isn't it? When life's difficult, pray, and when things are going well, pray. It's a kind of way of saying, and all other times, pray. Uh, Paul picked up the phrase, doesn't he, in, in one of his letters, pray continually. And I think that's what is on view here. And why is prayer so important? Prayer is essential because it is really a litmus test for the state of our heart before God. Prayer is an act of dependence on a sovereign God. Um, It's an act of dependence where I come to God and say, I'm not in control, but I trust in one who is. And so a person who prays is a person who has a big view of God. I wonder if you struggle with prayer, and in many ways I think we all do. Do we believe deep down that we really, really need God? I know we say prayer is important, but do we really believe that we need him? Because if we don't need God, then there's no point praying. But if we do need God, we need to encourage each other to pray far more than we do. And second question, not just do we, really, um, know, uh, uh, do we really need God, but do we really believe that God is able? Because if I believe I need God, but I don't really believe he's able, again, why bother praying? But if I believe I need God, and I believe that God is infinitely able, that is a power that we need to tap into in prayer, isn't it? And James wants us to see that. You and I need God in every area of our life all of the time. You know that lovely verse in Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, in him all things were created, and straight afterwards, and in him all things hold together. That includes you and it includes me. We need God for everything. But so often, like the picture behind me, we call out to God as our magic genie to fix us, and the rest of the time we ignore him. When the going gets tough, the faithful get praying. But what James then focuses on, and this is where it gets really quite tricky, James focuses on our specific need to pray when people are ill. I guess in many ways ill health is a great leveler that forces us in humility on God because we have so little control over our health. Verse 14, if anyone is ill, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. It's quite puzzling, isn't it? Why call the elders? Why can't you just call anybody to pray? And we're going to come back to this. Um, We know that healing is not a specific gift of the elder. We know that healing is not a qualification of an elder in the New Testament. And verse 16 suggests that all people should pray for those who are sick. So why here does James draw particular attention to the elder? I think in part it's to do with the fact that elders are, in a sense... Uh, Represent the rest of the church. So when there's a person is sick if the elders go and pray for them It's almost like they're going on behalf of the rest of the church But of course anyone could do that But more than that we're going to come to see this at the end James does begin to make a link between sickness and sin and so elders who in one of Paul's letters are called to oversee or be overseers over the flock To go and pray for someone who's physically sick also gives opportunity to pray for someone's spiritual sickness and we all need to pray for one another's spiritual sickness because we are all spiritually sick Now we'll come back to elders a little later on the reference to oil some people argue it's kind of medicinal particularly in the first century but most uses of the word oil in in the bible are to do with the symbolism of blessing so it seems probable that james is saying pray over people and this oil is a sign of blessing whether or not we should physically do that today or not um it's kind of up for grabs i guess but the real puzzle comes in verses 15 to 17. Here's two questions. I want to try and look at them because they're not easy. The first one is this. The prayer of faith will make the sick person well. That's a difficult verse. It's a really tricky verse. and I don't need to sort of tease it out. You'll know why that is difficult. The second problem, there seems to be some sort of link, doesn't there, in this chapter between sickness and sin. What is going on there? So we're going to try and uh, look at that together. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. When you come to a really tricky verse like that, where the alarm bells are going, you go, going, hang on, that doesn't seem to make sense. Are you saying that if I prayed and I had more faith, the person would be made well? What you have to try and do is, is, is interpret what isn't always clear in light of what is clear. It's one of the key sort of biblical principles for understanding the Bible. Now here's one verse that might throw more puzzle on the picture. It comes in 1 Corinthians 11 in the context where Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for their arrogant, immature attitude towards the Lord's Supper. And he does say here, anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing their body, without a recognition of who God's people are, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep. This is hard, but it does seem to be an isolated, at least, example where there is some direct link between physical sickness and sin. Maybe, in Corinth, the physical sickness that some people were experiencing was, in part, a judgment from God on their pride. That's difficult, and we have to wrestle with that. But that's not so clear. What is clear is a verse you might think of. Remember the passage in John chapter 9 where people come to jesus and go uh, the disciples come to jesus and go who sinned that this man was born blind was it his parents or was it him and jesus makes it really clear neither this man nor his parents so here in something that's very clear jesus seems to decouple physical sickness and sin this man wasn't blind because he had sinned or his parents had sinned he's blind because he's caught up in a broken fallen world and then you've got the example of job remember job This character who in the first verse in the first chapter is described as blameless and upright and yet he's inflicted with great sickness seems to be another example where physical sickness and sin is decoupled and so you have examples where it's clear john and job and you have an example that's difficult perhaps less clear in one corinthians you have to kind of wrestle with it and perhaps you're asking well which one's on view in james chapter five help us out a bit well again let's work out work from what is firstly clear look at verse 16 because this verse is clear halfway through verse 16 we read this the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective and we can kind of get that can't we so let's start with that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective A righteous person here is really uh, describing a person who is in a right relationship with God, a person who isn't kind of grieving God's Spirit. We all sin, and everything we do is covered in sin, but it's really speaking of a heart attitude that wants to give God all of our life, a kind of attitude of total surrender where there's not a particular area of our life that we knowingly withhold from God and say, no, I'm, I'm resisting your work in my life. That would be a description of a righteous person. It's never a description of a perfect person because there was only one who was truly righteous and we get an illustration then of what this righteousness could look like with the example of Elijah because he prayed with a kind of humble earnestness didn't he verse 17 Elijah was a human being even as we are he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crop So we do see here that for a man who's kind of walking closely with God, the prayer of a a righteous person is powerful and effective. But the verse that I think I really want to draw attention to, or the phrase, is verse 17. Elijah was a man even as we are, yet his prayer was powerful and effective. The power of prayer isn't found in the super special prayer The power of prayer is found in the humble heart who believes in the super special power of God. You're not a powerful prayer because you're a brilliant prayer. You are a powerful prayer because you believe in a great God. And that is the example of Elijah because for all of his brokenness he believed in the power of a great God. And that is what made his power prayer powerful so if you're a person who says well i just i can't pray eloquently i can't pray out loud in a prayer meeting i want to encourage you that you can and however simple your prayer is however you your prayer is the power of your prayer is in your eloquence or in your spiritual maturity is in your trust in a great god and sometimes i think we worry so much about the words that we're praying and what people are hearing when we pray we're not actually focusing on the god to whom we're praying so i'd love to encourage you in that And we see that again back in verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. I think the prayer offered in faith is the same as the prayer of a righteous person. It's this prayer of someone who is completely dependent upon God. And it's something that James has already picked up. Do you remember back in chapter 1 verse 6? He had said, when you ask, you you must believe and not doubt. It's a prayer of someone who believes that God is powerful and prays with a persistence, believing that God can answer prayer. But here's this problem that I guess we're still wrestling with, and it may not have helped us, but we're getting there. The prayer of a righteous person will make the sick person well. What do we do with that? Because there have been plenty of prayers by righteous people who've prayed powerfully and their prayers haven't been answered in the way that they would like, where we've prayed for healing for someone and they've not lived. And that's unbelievably difficult. Just to help us with this, I think it's right that we never claim that it is always God's will to heal this side of heaven. I think that's what the scriptures teach. We should never claim it is always God's will. Partly, how do I know that from this context? Look at chapter 5, verse 7. How does it begin? In the context of trying to wrestle with these difficult verses, James does say, be patient then in suffering. So it does seem to be a call to endure suffering. And if God wants to free us from all sickness, the prayer there wouldn't be patience in suffering. The prayer would be release me from it. So there seems to be something here about wrestling with God in the brokenness of our world and persevering. So I think this phrase, will make the sick person well, and needs to be understood ultimately in an ultimate sense, in the kind of Revelation 21 sense. There will be no more sickness, crying, mourning, or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. I think that's what's on view here. I think what James is saying is something along the lines of prayer may not always take away our suffering, but it does give us opportunity to draw closer to God in suffering. Now that's hard as well. I don't want to be flippant as I say that. Perhaps you're suffering in a very real way or perhaps you have done and you've said, you know what, I haven't really drawn that much closer to God in my suffering and I'm really hurting and it's difficult. I think if we're walking with someone who is suffering, we've got to be very careful as Christians we don't jump straight to the kind of in all things God works for your good. It's a great truth. Don't go there too quickly. If someone is grieving or suffering, just put an arm around them and love them because God in his journey with a person who's suffering may bring them to a place where they grow to know him better. But as people who walk with people who suffer, we must never rush someone to get there. When someone's hurting, we must never rush to sort of say, what is God teaching you in this? God will teach us in it. But we mustn't get there too, too quickly. I think there's an empathy that we need as Christians. So to encourage us with this very difficult verse, hold on to the fact that I think it's speaking of an ultimate hope. We will be raised up. A person who is trusted in Christ, no matter what they go for in their life, will one day be freed from all suffering. That's a wonderful thing. Now hold on to the truth that God does give us opportunity to grow closer to him in suffering. But let's not put pressure on each other to see that. Because God works often in a very different timing to our own. And let's believe that when we pray for healing, which we must do, let's believe that God has power to heal. But I think it's not right to demand healing because God never promises it. Now, I know these things are difficult, but just come to the last bit. Finally, when the going gets tough, the faithful take responsibility for each other. This is where I'm going to try and pull some of these things together. This is why I want to try and address that second problem that I highlighted earlier. Where there does in this passage seem to be some sort of link between sin, physical sickness and sin. What do we do with that? Particularly in light of the verses we looked at, 1 Corinthians 11 and John chapter 9. Uh, Now, at the risk of trying to get too technical, just have a look at verses 14 and 15. Because in your translation, you'll get the word sick coming twice in verse 14 and 15. But they're different words in the original. In verse 14, that word sick is almost always used of physical sickness. It's the same word that was used in uh, John chapter 11 when Jesus went to his best friend Lazarus, who was sick, and then he died. So it's almost certainly verse 14 is speaking of physical sickness. Verse 15, where your Bible will it be translated sick, it's a different word, and it's a word that's only used here in the whole of the Bible. Why would James use a very deliberate second different word I think it's probably because he's holding two things side by side physical sickness and spiritual sickness. Equally, you look in verse 15, you'll get a little phrase that you'll see in your Bibles will save. That means to rescue or to uh, to preserve. And you can think of rescue and um, being preserved in both ways, can't you? I'm rescued from physical sickness, I'm healed, I'm preserved, my life is preserved. But I'm also rescued from death physical, uh, uh, Spiritual sickness, sin So what is James doing? I know it's complicated But he deliberately uses two words that are different Probably because he's holding up physical ill health And spiritual ill health And saying they do sit a little bit side by side And this is why Doesn't all physical sickness Remind you and me of the brokenness of our world? Doesn't Your physical sickness, if you're suffering with ill health, remind you of your own frailty and need for God. It's a very humbling experience to be ill, to not be as strong as you want to be. Equally, why does he hold them side by side? Probably because sickness in some senses is always a spiritual matter. When a person is physically sick, often their spiritual state is affected. So often when we're physically ill, we'll ask questions of God's goodness, won't we? We ask questions of his care. But thirdly, why does he hold them side by side? Perhaps because physical sickness provides opportunity for us in that physical sickness to also consider our spiritual sickness, the sickness of our heart that desperately needs God too. I'm sure many of you will have heard of the um, famous phrase uh, that C.S. Lewis once quoted when, in his book on suffering. Uh, he said, God, speaks, uh, God um, whispers to us in our joys, he speaks to us in our sorrows, And he shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And maybe in part, the physical suffering that some people go through is part of the way God is seeking to wake us up to the desperate state of our nation, the desperate state of our world, and actually the desperate state of our own hearts and in physical sickness to come back to a God who cares I think that's probably maybe why there's this link to the elders in verse 14 as I said earlier something about pray for those who are physically sick but as you do that always remember to pray for spiritual sickness not because there's always a direct link you're not ill because you've necessarily sinned but because as you experience physical suffering it does remind us of the spiritual brokenness of our world and our need to come to God and to seek his forgiveness And as we begin to pray these things together, it's one of the wonderful ways that we can, as a church family, take responsibility for each other. Do you see verse 16? Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Maybe we're a little better at confessing sins privately to God. How good are you at confessing sins to each other? I'm rubbish at it because I'm proud and I don't want people to know where I failed. But it's pretty clear here. We are to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other that we may be healed. Pray for our physical healing. But at the same time, let's pray for one another's spiritual health. And I think that's why this letter ends as it does in 19 and 20 with these wonderful words. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring them back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You know, right back at the beginning of the letter, James introduces himself. James is the half-brother of Jesus, but do you notice he doesn't introduce himself as the half-brother of Jesus? How does he introduce himself? As a servant of Jesus. And isn't that what we all are? We are servants of the King. And one of the best ways that we can express that we are servants of the king is to take responsibility under god for each other's spiritual health next term i'd like to do a few things in some of our members meeting just to help us think a bit more about why we think membership matters as a church because i believe that it's within the context of membership that we're best able to care for one another's spiritual health and as we serve our king to look out for each other But I think it's a wonderful thing that in a book that is so deeply practical, full of practical wisdom for living life, that this book, full of action, full of practicality, ends with this focus on prayer and ends on this focus saying, at the end of the day, the big responsibility we have as Christians is to look out for and to love one another. And our spiritual health is the one that matters the most. And so let's hold on to that as we come into this Christmas season. Isn't this quite a timely message right now? Because we're thinking about Christmas. We're thinking about Emmanuel, God with us. And why did God send his only son into the world that first Christmas? It's because he knew that our greatest need was the state of our hearts. To be forgiven, to be set free, and to come into a living relationship with a loving and perfect God. I want to encourage us this Christmas. Let's be people who care for one another. And the most caring thing that any of us could do this Christmas is to introduce somebody else to Jesus. Because as we see here, if someone wanders from the truth and that person is brought back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Should we pray together? Heavenly Father, we come to you. We know that that is a difficult passage. I pray that something of it, at least, will be clearly understood by all of us. I pray for the things within it that we need to continue to wrestle with. Help us not to reject them just because they're hard. But would you give us the humility to hear your voice, hear what you're saying through this wonderful passage. thank you Lord that you're a God of compassion who cares about our physical sickness you're a God who calls us to pray we thank you that you give us hope that one day all things will be made right again and we thank you that in this passage we're reminded that the most important thing is the state of each of our hearts so Father we come to you in humility tonight and we pray that we would As a church family, really, really care about each other and take seriously that responsibility to encourage each other in our walks with you. Please would this Christmas we be more alive to the spiritual need of our own hearts and to the spiritual need of our nation. And please, Lord, when the going gets tough, help us to be faithful. Help us to be prayerful. Help us to keep going in your strength. Amen.